Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about how climate change is impacting housing markets from Phoenix to Hawaii to Florida and more. First, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking to Desmond Smith, Chief Growth Officer at UWM, about SafeCheck. Desmond, how does SafeCheck work? Hey, Sarah, how are you? So I would say first, you know, SafeCheck is allowing uh, LOs to give their borrowers peace of mind. So let's start there. You know, trigger leads have become a very large issue, not just in the mortgage space, but in any time someone's getting any type of credit. So we created SafeCheck to help prevent kind of that uh, aggravation and nuance of receiving, you know, tens, twenties, hundreds of calls that consumers receive. So what happens with SafeCheck is any LO who uses UWM, it's an exclusive product SafeCheck is to UWM, they would be able to either pull a single or tri-merge soft pool credit report. And while that credit report is being used to run AUS, they will have time to opt their consumer out of any solicitations and then therefore they will not receive all of those annoying calls and annoying solicitations. And that is also a big benefit because the, the cost of the credit bureau is much cheaper by leveraging SafeCheck. So it really is a win um, for LOs and it's obviously a win for consumers so they don't receive so many phone calls um, offering all different types of products and services. I can see how that could be a game changer. Thank you, Desmond. And listeners, you can find out more at uwm.com. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. Great to have you back. We've got lots to talk about. The first story I wanted to touch on was a follow-up that um, we did on the Phoenix housing market and some of the struggles there because of the ban on um, residential lending because of the water. So tell us about that story. Yeah. So a couple months back in recognition of the the major problems they have and just being a desert, um, a a desert city, the governments around uh, Maricopa County, which encompasses the cities of Phoenix and Scottsdale decided to ban basically new residential properties from being built in a certain area. And and this area is uh, about 5,700 square miles. And it, it essentially says if you don't have a designated water provider, you won't have the ability to obtain a building permit. And so Arizona is essentially looking at climate change and in a precautionary measure saying, we just don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the water to support additional growth in these areas. And so we are going to both literally and figuratively turn off the spigot, right? And so more than half of the county's water supply currently comes from groundwater. And the rest of it comes from the Colorado River, which is in a decade-long drought. And about 30% of the water used by Maricopa County each day 
talking about 640 million gallons is used for domestic purposes, right? Like people doing laundry or showering or watering their lawns, although it's probably not very sensible to have a lush lawn in Maricopa County, uh, you know, uh, Arizona, that is. Uh, And so this is all coming at a time in which population growth has really exploded in this area. So there's not a single metropolitan area in the country that has welcomed more residents than the Phoenix metro area. Last year alone, they had about 76,000 new people. And it's just a huge, staggering amount of growth. And it was never really planned in this manner. And so what we're kind of coming up against here is, I think, a very real need for policymakers to say, you know, we're only getting 11 inches of water, (laughs) rainwater a year. The river is not doing so great. Uh, We have groundwater in certain areas, but not in others, or the supply is not what we deem sustainable. We have to do something. We can't just keep kicking the can down the road. We can't just expect that people will come up with new technologies or that they'll live a different kind of lifestyle. And so we're going to take action for you. And I think a lot of people who follow the news will say, yeah, you got to kind of stop people from themselves, right? And the, the problem here is the home builders the real estate agents say you're targeting residents, you're targeting people, but they are really not the ones that are solely responsible for the growth, for the usage of this groundwater. And it seems like you're solving for a problem that does exist, but is not caused by us. And if it is, you know, you're also forgetting about the fact that there are already a huge amount of permits that have been issued. And so if the home builder already owns the land, and in many cases they do, they can still build that home, right? So you're not really solving the problem per se. You're maybe solving the problem 30 years from now. And, and perhaps that's that's a good policy, right? You know, we don't know if, if we could predict, you know, the migratory movements or where people will go and what kind of resources they would use. You know, a lot of us would be would be a lot wealthier than we are, right? So so that that's kind of the crux of the issue. And and it, it gets down to the the bare basics of, of economics, which is supply and demand, right? So you have a lot of people who are moving to these areas, there's still quite a bit of demand to go to Phoenix um, and, and other you know parts of, of the desert because it's a lot more affordable than other areas. And the home builders are able to turn a pretty tidy profit by building in you know often unincorporated areas. And that is going to push up costs. You know, if, if you cannot build in you know X number of, of miles the miles around it are going to get more expensive, right? Well, and, you know, so we're, we're, this is set in the time of really unaffordability for, for many people and just a lack of inventory. At the same time, we had that huge ProPublica um, great series that they, they published um, showing that some of the agriculture 
in Phoenix, you know, I mean, so groundwater is being used to grow feed for cattle, right? To, to grow hay that is owned by, um, you know, companies in the Middle East or in China. And so it's, if you look at how the, how the water is being apportioned, it's like, shouldn't we step a step back a, a minute and say, before we say, no, you can't live here or whatever, say, you know, what is, what is the best use of that groundwater? I feel like that just threw, you know, just a, a whole nother, um, variable into this mix and people are very upset about it. And it looks like they're taking some action, but there's some things they can't do. I mean, there's, there's not a, it's completely legal what those companies are doing, but the fact that they're raising all of that hay in a desert environment and, and, you know, the ProPublica story is just incredible. And, and they're very, they're very open about the fact that they don't have the water, you know, it's cheaper for them to, to buy that land and grow that hay and then ship it over than it is to do it because they don't have enough water. And it's just like, you know, common sense would say that maybe that groundwater has a better use than, than hay for animals that aren't even here. Right. Sure. And then that, that also brings us to, this is a global economy and the alfalfa in Arizona because of the, the desert uh, and, and just, you know, in a lot of cases, they they have a fairly smart and I, I hesitate to use the term sustainable when we talk about any sort of resource in, in this manner. But but a, a lot of the alfalfa farmers do have uh, you know the ability to create a lot of efficiencies with the water usage that they do have. Not not across the board, you know, certainly, and and you could apply that same logic to. Uh, homeowners, right? I, I probably use a lot less water than my next door neighbors uh, for, for various reasons. I, I mean, the scale, of course, is different. The alfalfa farmers will tell you we are creating a more efficient use of the land than what other alternatives will be. I think that's debatable. Uh, there's an excellent podcast on Bloomberg called Oblots, and they had an alfalfa farmer who'd been, you know, his family had, had worked on the land for God, I, I think well over a hundred years, and and he had some some pretty uh, interesting things to say about um, how many misconceptions there are about the efficiencies of alfalfa farming. But that said, I mean, at the end of the day, we're using water in areas that do not naturally provide a lot of water. You can debate the efficiencies of it, you know, till the sun goes down. These are deserts; these are not going to suddenly get a lot more water. We do need to come up with a new process and and you know there are there are definitely a lot of different beliefs about what the land should be used for we are humans we are going to seek land we are not going to just preserve it and say okay well i i guess uh i guess we'll just keep it the way it is and and let nature reclaim you know this land for its you know natural purposes so the question is what what do you do with with the land that is usable that the government has decided uh, we, we will, uh, you know, use for either agricultural interests or industrial interests or residential. And there are other considerations here, which is the the policymakers in Arizona have set up a very, very high bar. And what I mean by that is if you look at the requirements, essentially the policymakers in Arizona have said, that home builders need to ensure a 100-year water supply exists in these areas in order to build. If you look at the other states around it, other states that are 
impacted by drought, such as New Mexico, California, Colorado. They have water supply requirements of 40 years, 25 years, 20 years. So we're applying a very, very high standard. And the real estate agents, the home builders in the area say, this just isn't fair. And it it isn't in line with, with that of you know, other states that have a lot of the same ecological conditions. I also just think that um, how is anyone supposed to, in our current state, know what a hundred years water supply looks like when we, you know, climate has changed so much and continues to change that I, I, I'm not even sure how they would do that. Like, <laughs> what what are you supposed to do there? And and to your point, it feels it feels punitive and maybe on the wrong people or on the wrong sector. Um, you know, to your point that there might be, there, there is that the argument needs to be made or the conversation to have is like, is it sustainable to have a whole bunch of people in an area where it just doesn't get very much water? Is that a good idea? Should we keep building there? But it, it feels like there, you know, there needs to be that overall conversation, which is just so difficult to have in our current environment. Like who's, who is going to be deciding that? So let's pivot from the Phoenix market to another region affected by climate events. And that's Hawaii, right? Who's, that's been in the news with the fires that have devastated one of their big tourist towns and of course affected homeowners there as well. Um, and any housing industry, the, all the real estate and mortgage folks. That event is tied into even a larger story we've been reporting on when it comes to getting insurance in some of these climate-affected markets. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so I, I think most people have probably heard by now that there is a tragic, horrendous fire in Lahaina on the island of, of Maui in Hawaii, and it torched about 3,000 structures. It raised entire neighborhoods. And it drove out a lot of residents who could trace their family history back generations. And it's exacerbating an already dire housing crisis in one of America's most expensive places. Anyone who's even tried to go to Hawaii and spend a week there knows how incredibly expensive it is. And, and that's true for the people who live there. Rental costs there are far higher than uh, incomes. Housing costs, just like in California, even worse than California, you're running about a million dollars, you know, and there just aren't a lot of options. These are islands. There, There is only so much space. There is only so much um, interest really from, <laughs> from uh, you know, the, the locals in developing as well, right? And, and in a lot of cases, they're getting pushed out. They're being forced to find cheaper accommodation. Uh, I, I believe they, they call Las Vegas, one of like, I think like the ninth island or, or something like that. It's, they have a huge population of native Hawaiians because they, they needed to find something much cheaper. Uh, so another major factor here, there are a couple things. The first is wildfires were not considered a very present likely threat. And so Hawaii being, you know, an, an island, with uh, you know the potential for a lot of adverse weather con- conditions, wasn't really considered a fire hazard. You, you can talk about volcanoes, you can talk about uh, you know hurricanes, typhoons, all sorts of uh, you know flood issues. But wildfire was not a consideration, and there's not a lot of people, so far as we can tell, that had homeowners insurance, and very few. Specifically, you add any kind of protection for fire. And so 
we have probably about 3,000 structures that will need to be rebuilt. And when we're looking at the rebuilding costs, we're in the $5 billion plus range already for a relatively small town in Hawaii. We are not talking about rebuilding, you know, lower Manhattan after a major flood event or anything like that. I mean, it, it was basically wiped out. There's nothing really there. And the people who were there didn't have insurance. So if there is going to be insurance going forward, and, and you would have to think that that would be a requirement for uh, really any mortgage company, right? Any any kind of uh, you know firm that has a financial um, stake in, in these properties, I can't even imagine what those costs would be. And we're already talking about an area in which, you know, people have been stretched to the limit and couldn't afford that in the first place. And so one of the, I think, less savory elements of, of real estate industry occurrences is after a dis- disaster, you do see, I think it's usually wholesalers, but they come in and they say, hey, you know, your house is gone. Your family has to relocate. You don't have 1 million or whatever it is uh, to rebuild. So I'm going to make you an offer of 550 and they're going to try to scoop it up on the cheap. I, I think it's pretty predatory. I think it's pretty uh, icky is, is maybe the nicest term I could use. Um, but that's, that is happening right now. I don't think it's everyday real estate agents who are fielding calls from clients that are saying, hey, you know, this is an opportunity for me to buy in Hawaii, which is still on the whole a very desirable place for people to live. But these are, you know, I think pretty gross tactics to capitalize in people's misery. But that's, you know, that's not even factoring in the insurance. So the other places that we've seen um, insurers say they wouldn't take on clients were uh, California and Florida, correct? Yeah. So Florida has had this issue for many years. There is not a single place in the country, according to CoreLogic, uh, that has more risk inherent in, in just the location, the changes in the climate. There are hurricane risks. There are flooding risks. Risks. There are, I mean, it's we're talking probably in the trillions of dollars over the next couple decades. Um, that doesn't mean that they're all going to materialize. We also, our science is not good enough to capture the speed with which things are changing, but we do know from everything we've witnessed in, in recent years that this isn't improving and it's probably going to push more areas that have been relatively stable for decades uh, into, you know, more risk, more more likelihood of a hurricane or a flood or whatever. And so that is pushing up the costs, right? If there is going to be a claim, the insurance is going to have to, not going to have to, that they are in all likelihood going to be asked to make the claim. And then you have the other factor here, which is a lot of regulators in, in states have prevented insurance companies from hiking their premiums to what, what they would say is commensurate with the risk. And so insurance companies are looking at this and saying, okay, hold on. So it's getting worse. We have less financial ability to handle these situations and you're not letting us, uh, you know, increase premiums to actually account for what is in some areas an exploding level of risk. We're just not going to be issuing new claims. And so, in Florida, they've had dozens of companies leave the marketplace 
over the last- New, new claims or new, new policies? New policies. And so they do have insurers of last resort in California for fire and in Florida for, I mean, it's general homeowner's insurance. Uh, and, and that is not tied specifically to what could be government mandated insurance if you're in the FEMA flood zone. Um, but these are the fastest growing insurance companies in the world, basically, you know, and that's because there's no one out there that's willing to take on that risk. And so we're seeing huge spikes in premiums going up 400% in some cases in parts of Florida, California, if you can even find a company that will take on, you know, a private company that will take on some of the risks. And it's changing where real estate agents are able to show houses, right? If you were taking someone whose budget is accounted for, let's say for argument's sake, a million dollars in the home price, but they didn't factor in that their monthly cost in, let's say, fire insurance through a private carrier is going to be three grand a month, they can't afford the million dollar house, right? They can afford a $675,000 house. And guess what? You're not going to find that in desirable areas of California. So that's going to push people into, you know, less desirable areas. And, you know, maybe that's a different discussion worth having at a future podcast. But, you know, you, you can see that these, these, the fact that we have a patchwork system across the country and figuring out risk and who will insure what and what the government, whether it be state or federal, is responsible for, what the homeowner is responsible for, the caps and regulation and where insurance companies are willing to do business. And it's it's just kind of chaos, right? And so this is happening not just in Florida, not just in California. This is happening in a lot of areas in which the regulators are playing hardball with the insurance companies. And the insurance companies are saying, you know, for like 14% profit, this just isn't worth it. And we're going to work on other business lines that do have much fatter margins. And so we're going to have to figure out a way either to have really solid insurers of last resort, not just in California, not just in Florida, but in probably, you know, dozens of states across the country, or we're going to need to overhaul our entire federal system of, of risk management when it comes to property insurance. And given the dysfunction you see in Congress, you know, that that seems unlikely. So it's it's a really difficult challenge and there's not going to be a single solution. You can't just wave a wand and say, okay, here's how we fix this issue. It's going to get worse before it gets better too. And I think our industry is right in the in the center of that, right? I mean, it it's right in the middle of you know the um, the real estate agents and the mortgage loan officers and the title and the appraisal. Like all of those people are affected by this, and yet can feel like they don't. Where is the solution? Where is their voice? Or where is even like to your point? I mean. Um, should we have like a flood czar? Should we have a climate czar that's like we're, we're remaking policy across the country? Should we have a, a war on, you know, I guess a war on climate change doesn't make sense. But, um, you know, we've had wars on poverty. We've had war on drugs. We've had war on different things like, you know, it. how does this become a priority to the extent that it then goes to the to the local um, you know, level. And that's really, it's, it's really a function of our system is very localized, right? We can all say, you know, real estate's local, but not just that, but government is local. And, you know, all of the, all of the, um, 
things that, you know, you might want to do for insurance. Everything is local. And so really it sort of defies an easy federal, you know, move on their part to make sure that these things are, are um, taken care of, especially because you don't even have really, you know, a, a lot of agreement on what it is that we should be doing. And, and probably the one of the easier ways to start thinking about a holistic not not answer. There was no answer, as I said, um, but but starting to actually account for the risk in in maybe a more comprehensive manner would be to work through the GSEs. The GSEs are considering, uh, you know, how to integrate climate change modeling and as, actual risk management into their basically home home loan purchase s- system. Um, but the GSEs move pretty slowly on what I consider like meat and potatoes everyday mortgage issues that, you know, people are flabbergasted and take three years to solve. So imagine trying to account for how Fannie and Freddie and Ginny deal with something as, as challenging and multifaceted as climate risk in, you know, and we're not just talking like Florida where Look, we know that there are hurricanes. We know that there is going to be an issue here. There are areas in New York that um, you wouldn't traditionally think would have a major climate risk, but it's flash floods, right? It's it's creeks and it's areas where you have a lot of impervious surfaces like parking lots and streets that don't sop up the water. And there are huge swaths of West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, where they have major flood events. Dozens of people have died. And that's not something that you traditionally think about. Fannie and Freddie do not have a comprehensive policy to account for the risk of a home, even where you are, Sarah, in Dallas. You know, they have sections that flood pretty frequently now that were never accounted for in, in you know, the, the FEMA flood maps. And we are, we are not going to be able to catch up to the speed with which the earth is changing. Um, but we at least could come up with a policy through the GSEs to better account for the risk. Right now, that risk is basically unaccounted for. And we're talking, I don't know, probably conservatively a trillion dollars, conservatively probably much more than that, right? Well, and you and I have both um, seen like CoreLogic's Discovery Center platform where you can look at different risks like overlaid on top of other risks. And it's different for each house, each property, even on a street. Some of those properties have a flood risk. And it's, it's just, it defies <laughs> it defies the imagination when you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, it, it's hard to get your hands wrapped around this. But I agree with you that the GSEs could be a potential, um, you know, as the investors in most of these loans, they are the the ones who could make a difference here. I have my, my father's brother died uh, a little over a year ago and he was, he was kind of a sucker and, and he somehow, I, I think he, he got into a discussion with a guy at a bar in West Virginia and bought completely useless land on a mountainside. And he paid about eight grand for it you know, a couple decades ago, and the land is not buildable. You would need to completely, you know, add utilities. You'd have to add a road. You'd have to add so much more than the land would ever be potentially worth. And he did the same, a similar thing in the bayou in Louisiana. That property is really interesting because it's in Del Camber, Louisiana, 
Um, I, I don't know the pronunciation exactly. So my father inherits his piece of land. It is next to a canal. And the, I guess it's the gulf that flows into the canal. And the property floods. We're talking about seven feet of water in height. So a, a basketball center worth of water every couple of years. Technically speaking, if I wanted, since my father now owns this land that, you know, isn't worth the taxes of about $550 a year that he would pay on it, if I wanted, I could build a structure on this land. And yes, I would have to pay flood insurance. I would have to pay for whatever if I were going to build uh, a home with with a mortgage on it. If, if I didn't want to, I could I could just completely forego it, right? I could just build with cash and, you know, have my little lot in Louisiana. Um, but let's say I went more of a traditional route. Who bears that risk? The tax, you bear that risk, Sarah. And that's because we don't really have- I, I don't have like any, that risk. No, it's not a good risk. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, having to pay, even if it is a penny or two, right? You shouldn't be contributing to that. And it's because we don't have a centralized model or n- no one has been able to wrap their arms around it don't have a lot of confidence that anyone will. And so you just have all of these problems that are snowballing and there's no manner with which anybody can really fully account for the risk. And for better and for worse, our government policy has been a subsidized mortgage, right? We are the only country spare Denmark that basically does it through bonding. And, um, and you know, at some point we are going to have to cover, I'm just, I'm not, talking about like the financial machinery around, you know, who who gets paid, whether the investors do well. I mean, the everyday people and the responsibility that they'll have for a U.S. system that has prioritized this above the actual changing risk. So it's going to be interesting. I'm I'm very curious to see if Fannie and Freddie are going to come up with actual policies that take into account what we know are really changing risk conditions. But I, I think we're at least a couple years away from that. It will be interesting. I know that they have ESG initiatives, which this, you know, um, overlaps with some of those um, that they've really ramped up. So we will see. They do seem to be the uh, the leaders in the space that could do it. In the meantime, our industry, our folks, you know, just have to make the the best of it, right? If you're in uh, Arizona and you're like, okay, um, I'm a real estate agent. And now you're saying that there's going to, you know, you're going to cut off um, that avenue. And then, you know, to look at how many homes are for sale there. I think um, this last week, it was like 5,000 or something like that, um, a, a pretty minuscule amount. So lots. Yeah. I mean, like we, we also have an inventory crisis in, in right. Arizona, even where they do build quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of new construction in Arizona. It's one of the one of the hotspots for the national home builders and some regional players as well. They're not even close to hitting demand. And this is one of the few areas in which we really do build, baby, build. Crazy. Well, well, why don't we end it on a positive note here? So if anyone is interested in buying a piece of property <laughs> next to a canal in Louisiana, I, I will do what I can to help with the inventory shortage in this country. <laughs> Hit me up. I'll give it to you for a song, I promise. And we won't have to use any brokers. Yeah, it's james at hwmedia.com. And I'm happy to entertain any and all all offers. I've been looking What a to- generous offer from you. Yes. Yeah, uh, my dad you will know, I'm... <laughs> 
is this really uh, ending on a positive note there? I don't know, but I appreciate the, the thing. I hate when we have, you know, these kind of things where we talk about, here's all the stuff. And it's like, yeah, there's not really an easy solution, but it is what we're all dealing with. So I think it's worth it. And, and your news team um, continues to report on these things and how specifically it's affecting real estate and mortgage folks, which, you know, is, is what we want to do. Um, kind of narrow it down to like, this is why, this is how it affects you. So I appreciate all the work you're doing. Uh, appreciate that generous offer. Let me know. We'll have to uh, get on and, and find out if anybody uh, takes you up on that. <laughs> I'll keep you updated next week. <laughs> Thanks, James. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.